Hey, good evening. Hi. Welcome. What a beautiful day today, huh? Pretty amazing weather. How's everyone this evening? Good. I send you some... uh, graphical schemes that Emily did. Thank you, Emily. Thank you very much. They're really cool. My pleasure. At some point, we got to go through them. Yeah. It's a good learning experience, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. Especially when I was trying to figure out who, what was a person and what was a text. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of merge into the same. So we'll go through them at some point. Let's start with our chanting. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to enlightenment or omniscience. <laughs> May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Asking Manjushri to accomplish enlightenment for us. I wonder if that works, if it works that way. Okay, so the reading for tonight was, uh, there was a chapter from the biography called Activities for the Doctrine and Beings. And then there's the Madhyamaka texts that we didn't make it all the way through. And then there's the beginning of the lion's roar. Roar. <laughs> 
so um, why don't we why don't we begin with the um, Madhyamaka text? Actually, let me ask you. I I find the the biography this chapter was fascinating, uh, but I don't know if it's interesting to to other people because I'm like totally into all these different just like knowing all the different texts that he taught and wrote and all that stuff. But other people of interest are just more the same, similar to, to prior chapters. Any comment? I enjoyed it. Good. Okay, so I am under the belief that we went through the first Madhyamaka texts, first two, uh, which gets us to page 133. Does anybody have a same or different recollection? <laughs> Seems right. Seems right. Okay. Seems good. So, two kinds of ultimate and equal status of the Swatantrikas and Prasangyakas from Mipom's commentary on the Madhyamaka Alankara. So, uh, I thought these selections were quite good and uh, definitely helpful background on Madhyamaka before diving into the lion's roar. So, within this Madhyamaka tradition, some, i.e. the Prasangas, do not analyze conventional phenomena. They're too busy. I mean, like, you can only analyze so many things in life. So just conventional phenomena, they're not... They don't go anywhere, so they just don't analyze them. They just accept conventional phenomena as they are. They affirm them simply as they appear, empirically in the common consensus. Common consensus is a little bit of a vague term, especially these days, but we'll leave that at, at that. Uh, others, the Swatantrikas, so these are the two branches of Madhyamaka, the Prasangika and the Swatantrikas, do examine phenomena and assert them in the manner of the Sautrantrikas and other substantialists. So the Sautrantrikas are substantialists in that they believe that there is real substance that substantial existence exists. There is substantial existence. Substantial existence in the form of what? Any ideas? What do the Sautrantikas believe that... Uh, believe that. Oops. Particles? Yeah. Uh, partless particles. <laughs> Infinitesimum. Uh, let's see. Let me try that again. Infinitesimally small particles. Thank you. Indivisible moments of consciousness as well? That's a good point. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's two things in the universe. There's matter and there's mind. And uh, mind exists by irreducible moments. That's great. Irreducible. I like that. Thank you, Liz. Um, but in the Madhyamaka Alankara, which is the ornament of the middle way, conventional phenomena are posited in accordance with the Chittamatra view. And thus this text inaugurates for the first time in the history of Buddhist 
uh, texts, I guess. The tradition of Yogacara-Madhyamaka, the combination of the two. So, he said Yogacara-Madhyamaka, even though he's, he's used Chittamatra for the, uh, the way of viewing conventional phenomena. So, he's sort of equating Chittamatra and Yogacara. Um, what is the Chittamatra view? of uh, conventional phenomena. That's the mind only, right? That's, That's the mind only. Well said. They're just mind. They're all in your mind. When examined with conventional reasoning, conventional reasoning means inference, the, the uh, three-part inferential syllogism that survives uh, the three tests and uh, this way of positing the relative truth as being mind only is found to correspond to what in the final analysis is the case on the conventional level. In this context it must be realized that the two kinds of valid reasoning conventional and ultimate, have different spheres of application. What are the different spheres of application of these two types of reasoning? Yeah, that's it. You got it. Just say it. Well, it's the one that people need so they can understand it and then the one that it really is which is the conventional and the ultimate so there's the convention he just said it and you explained it very well conventional uh, valid reasoning and ultimate valid reasoning uh, and those are their spheres the conventional valid reasoning applies to the conventional and the ultimate to the ultimate and never the twain should, shall meet now, the best way of positing the conventional is out of the Chittamachans. That's sort of a radical statement, which is a method, which as a method is extremely felicitous. Felicitous means what? Happy or uh, effective? Pleasing. Happy? Anyone? I'm not good with big words. Okay, when we consider the conventional in this way, we're not asking whether phenomena exist as mental projections on the ultimate level. So, uh, he's implying that people immediately confuse our, uh, the Chittamachan view as applying to the ultimate level. In this presentation of Shantarakshatan, he's saying that's not right. We're just using it on the conventional. We are instead using a conventional valid reasoning to assess phenomena that merely and incontrovertibly appear. What does he mean a phenomena incontrovertibly appear? Undeniably, you can bang your head against the wall and it's really there. You can't like deny that the wall is there, that appearances are, are there. It's like when someone is asked whether the appearance is experienced in dreams 
are the mind or whether they exist separate from the mind. A sensible investigator will conclude that they are simply the mind experiencing itself and that they cannot exist outside the mind. We speak in a similar vein. When he says that, he's talking about waking life, that all these things exist in the mind and they cannot exist outside of the mind. However, some people muddle the two kinds of reasoning. They think that to affirm a tenet that investigates conventional phenomena is incompatible with the prosangika stance, which is to accept phenomena as they are without analysis according to the general consensus. It must be said, however, that in the correct, sorry, in the context of pramana, or valid cognition, applied on the relative level, it is quite acceptable to say that phenomena exist according to their characteristics, or that they are established by valid cognition, and so forth. When he says phenomena exist according to their characteristics, what would be an example of a phenomena that exists according to their characteristics? A table. A table exists by way of its characteristics. What is its characteristics? You can put stuff on it. Yeah, it supports things. Yeah, or like fire is hot. A thing in its characteristics. Um, the important thing, however, is to distinguish. That is not to confuse the kind of valid cognition used in the assessment. Not confusing the ultimate and relative valid cognitions. For if conventional phenomena were assessed from the standpoint of ultimate valid cognition, they would not be even slightly established thereby. There would be just like darkness that disappears in a bright light. That's a cool analogy. Was there was the darkness ever really there? Was it like a thing? Obviously it wasn't. On the other hand, if the assessment is made from the point of view of conventional valid cognition, phenomena are on this level established ineluctably and undeniably. What the hell does ineluctable mean? Undeniable. Undeniable. Leave <laughs> unchanging. Unchanging. Ineluctable. Unchanging. Cool. Um, therefore, however much conventional reasoning may be used to examine phenomena in accordance with their mode of appearance, this investigation will never become an examination on the ultimate level. In brief, no madhyamaka, no madhyamika, whether prasangika or swatantrika, refutes things as they are commonly perceived. You know, so the things that we experience, that we all perceive in our world, we're not arguing with, with that, with those appearances. As any type of madhyamaka, we're not disputing that there's trees and the greenery and so forth. On the other hand, no madhyamaka asserts an entity that is truly and intrinsically existent. So the minute you say, well, that tree is really there, then we have a big problem. <laughs> then we get really bent out of shape. Um, as a matter of emphasis and according to the degree of realization of the way the two truths are united, there are different ways of establishing the ultimate. 
that's an interesting phrase. Like the, there's different ways of establishing the ultimate, but it is inappropriate to assign a high or low position to a tenant system simply on the basis of how it explains the relative. So really, when we when we do the hierarchy of tenant systems or views. Uh, it's really based on their view of the ultimate, of what the ultimate is, not the relative. In short, from the ultimate standpoint, the indivisibility of the two truths, the relative and the ultimate, as realized in meditative equipoise by primordial wisdom beyond thought and word. Um, I, I read this incorrectly. Let's start. In short, from the ultimate standpoint, which is the indivisibility of the two truths as realized in meditative equipoise, there is no need to make any distinction between the two truths. From the ultimate point of view, there's only one truth. Phenomena are primordially beyond any thesis that affirms or negates their existence, non-existence, both or neither. This is similar to the way certain questions were answered by the Buddha's silence. Since the ultimate level is beyond all conventionalities, expressions, formulas, sorry, formulations, and conceptual constructs, and since it is the very equality of all things, it is beyond all assertion. There's nothing you can say about the ultimate other than that it's beyond description and, and things like that. But in post-meditation, outside of meditative equipoise, according to the appearing mode of phenomena, which is an object of word and thought. The appearing mode of phenomena is an object of word or thought. So it's the referent. When we talk about a table, as we did just a minute ago, or a tree, the appearing object is, uh, is what we're referring to, is the object of the, those words and thoughts. Uh, one reflects on the phenomena of the ground, path, and fruit. Moreover, if there is a need to... So, so um, outside of meditative equipoise, poise, rather, the ground, the scheme of ground, path, and fruit makes sense. In meditative equipoise, there is no such thing as ground, path, and fruition. Moreover, if there is a need to explain them also to others, one cannot but engage in the refutation or establishment of things by correctly distinguishing and using the two types of valid reasoning. It should not be thought, therefore, that the Swatantrika approach differs greatly from that of the Prasangikas. Swatantrikas are different in the way they dress and the way they talk. They have a different accent about conventionalities, but they also established through reasoning the ultimate view of both Nagarjuna and Asanga as being indivisible. This is uh, sort of what he's getting at, is he's bringing together the stream of teachings of Nagarjuna and Asanga, which um, is his, is Shantarakshita's thesis that uh, the ultimate intent of Asanga and Nagarjuna are the same. Whereas Prasangikas don't really, uh, well, some some Prasangikas, maybe we'll call them newer Prasangikas, don't really view it that way. They think that Nagarjuna and Asanga had, uh, that Nagarjuna's understanding of 
the nature of ultimate truth, where reality was was different and and more uh, refined than a sangha's. But Derek, can can I just ask? Um, so the Svatantrika's view on partless particles that those really exist, they mean only on the relative level when they say that? Uh, so he said earlier the Sautrantikas assert partless particles. Oh, not the Sautrantikas. Right. Okay, the, the, okay. Yes. Right, 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 got it. So when he says um, back in that paragraph, uh, the Svatantrikas examine phenomena and assert them in the manner of the Sautantrikas and other substantialists, that's only on the conventional level? Yes. Okay. Yeah, whereas the Sautantrikas view the partless particles as being the ultimate nature Got of phenomena. Got it. Okay. They're, that that uh, way of understanding phenomena as being made of partless particles is relegated to... Uh, the relative. Thank you. Or the conventional, which is a really big point. It's like the uh, one school takes the ultimate of the prior school and makes it the relative. It's pretty cool. Um, if if one understands the, the matter thus, all the different disputes of Tibetan scholarship on whether conventional phenomena are established by valid cognition or not resolves them resolve themselves quite naturally the criticism made by certain people to the effect that the scholars of the earlier period mistook the genuine prasangika view and that they failed to understand correctly the view of nagarjuna and his son arya deva is likewise naturally um, dissipated now arya deva was not technically nagarjuna's nagarjuna's son he was his main disciple, so they call him the father and son. And um, he's talking about the Galupas. The Galupas say that the understanding of Tibetans in the early period, in the first turning of the Wheel of Dharma, where everybody was enigma, basically, um, that they did not understand Nagarjuna correctly because they followed Shantarakshita and they had this view of the union of uh, Yogacara and Madhyamaka. And so the, Galup the, uh, the Galukpas come out of this uh, period that started in about the 11th century when Chandra Kirti's introduction to the Middle Way was retranslated by a gentleman I think named Patsap and um, he made it famous. He, he by retranslating it, he taught it widely, and other people started paying attention to it more. And uh, there began this rift that oh, this text Madhyamakavatara, the introduction to the Middle Way by Chandra Kirti, presented. They felt that it presented both a different way of understanding reality and a better way than what Shantarakshita had presented in his ornament of the Madhyamaka, the middle way. The path in which the conventional and the ultimate truths are united without any assertion of their being either identical or different constitutes the great vehicle. So this is the essence of the Mahayana. It's the, uh, the unity of the two truths. 
Um, an individual who adopts this approach can be properly called a practitioner of the Mahayana, and in such a case, the name is being used correctly. As the first step at the stage of study and reflection, uh, so study and reflection are the first two of the three ways of cultivating prajna. The third one is meditation, study, reflection, meditation. The two truths are combined in a manner whereby production on the conventional level and non-production on the ultimate level are the objects of words and concepts. So we study the way the path works, the way karma works, the, the way defilements work, and so forth on the relative level, i.e. production, and then the absence of production as being the characteristic of the ultimate. And when we do that, we're not talking about the real ultimate, but we're approximating the ultimate by, dis by um, analyzing it and describing as, it as being beyond production. In terms of this pairing, the ultimate level is called the figurative ultimate. This, this term figurative, meaning that it, it has like the figure of the ultimate, not, not uh, literally speaking, but it sort of approximates what the ultimate looks like and smells like and tastes like. But it's not the real ultimate. It's like a reflection. Because, on the one hand, it is contrasted with existence on the relative level, and because, on the other hand, it belongs to the ultimate side of things and is counted as the ultimate. This idea that, that by um, using reasoning or logic to refute the ultimate nature of production and that thereby we prove that there is some state of existence, or some state rather, without saying the word existence, but some state that exists beyond production is not the real ultimate. It's a con conceptual um, idea of the ultimate. It's extremely useful as a stepping stone, but it's not the real McCoy. Within the context of the two truths, it is the counterpart of the relative. They go hand in hand, so to speak, and is simply an avenue of approach that is in harmony with the non-figurative ultimate. It's a way of approaching the real thing. For if one meditates on it, it has the power to destroy one's powerful clinging to the reality of things. So if you can meditate on something, it's not the real ultimate. You can't really meditate on the real ultimate, but you meditate on a conceptual uh, image of the ultimate, and thereby you undermine clinging to things as being real, which has been built up by the force of habit from time without beginning. It should be understood, moreover, that it is only in terms of this figurative ultimate that statements like, there is no production are made. The real ultimate does not exist but in the sense of being beyond production. It doesn't have characteristics. 
and the philosophical investigations implied by such statements, however perfect and far-reaching they may be, are only a means of bringing certainty in the post-meditation period. As far as con concerns the authentic ultimate mode of things, however, non-production, formulated in contrast with production, is no more than a conceptual reflection construed through the mental exclusion of production. We come to understand non-production by showing the fallacy of production. And it's a, a mental construct. For the non-figurative ultimate is beyond all conceptual constructs such as existence or non-existence, production or non-production, and so on. It is not the domain of thought and language. It is what the arias those who have achieved the path of seeing and above, see with the utterly stainless primordial wisdom of meditative equipoise. This is the unsurpassable non-figurative ultimate. From this standpoint, the Swatantrikas make no assertion either. They don't assert they don't assert the ultimate to be uh, one thing or another, just like the Prasangas. Now, since the figurative ultimate comes close to the non-figurative ultimate and is in harmony with it, it is counted as ultimate in terms of like counting the divisions of the two truths he's talking about, being also referred to as the concordant ultimate. So just another term for it. It's concordant the figurative one is concordant with the ultimate one, the non-figurative. Those who, through practice associated with the view of the concordant ultimate, thus attain the experience of the non-figurative ultimate truth may be called either prasangyukas or svatantrikas, depending on the way they make or do not make assertions in the post-meditation period where they're, they're talking about relative phenomena. Prasangyukas make no assertions about relative phenomena. They avoid getting into discussion about it completely. They're the most evasive people you'll ever meet. Did you leave your shoes here in the hallway? And they're like, what shoes? What hallway? Imagine having a kid who was like a person. It could be a nightmare. Uh, let's see. But one should know that in terms of their realization, there's no difference between them. They're both in possession of the wisdom of the Aryas. This is very important and will be explained further when the purpose of this text, and this text is the Madhyamaka Lankara by Shantarakshiti, uh, Shantarakshita, is expounded. What is the cause of the wisdom experienced by the Aryas in meditative equipoise? It is the complete assimilation of the correct understanding of the two truths. All the stuff that he's been talking about then produces enlightenment. There is absolutely no alternative to this. Only two sticks together can be used to make a fire. One stick by itself is useless. That's a sort of interesting statement I thought in that. Normally I tend to think that uh, understanding the ultimate produces enlightenment. But he's saying you have to understand both the ultimate and the relative to bring about enlightenment. That they sort of make each other understood or together one can only together can one really understand reality.
Um, yes, ma'am. Are are the arias um, like? I thought that was kind of the end point of the shravakas. Is are they? Is it also like the the um, attainment level of of these other um, bodhisattvas? Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a general term that can be that is used to apply both to shravakas and uh, Prajeka Buddhas as well as bodhisattvas. Okay. Um, in the same way, if the two approaches are not evenly united, the certainty of the state from that from the conceptual constructs of the four ontological extremes can never be ex- achieved. Exist, non-exist, both and neither. Therefore, according to the tradition of the great charioteer. Shantarakshita. So he's using this term charioteer, and uh, traditionally there's two charioteers and six ornaments. And uh, Emily has indicated that in her picto- in the one called pictograms with little pictograms of chariots and and what are the ornaments like jewels or something? Yeah, like little jewels. <laughs> <laughs> and so normally the two chariot there's two chariots in the Garjan and the Sangha, and he's saying that Shantarakshita is the third chariot, which is like really high praise, you know, to say that somebody's on the level of Nagarjuna and the Sangha is like whoa. And he's saying that he is uh, on that level because he's brought those the two other charioteers uh, together. The wisdom fire, the wisdom fire that comes from uniting the two spotless ways of valid reasoning, which investigates the relative and the ultimate, can burn up the tinder wood of dualistically appearing knowledge objects, leaving nothing behind. So he and, and everyone else is constantly referring back to this image that the Buddha presents in a sutra called the Kashyapa Sutra, the questions of Kashyapa, where he describes how we use conventional mind to uh, burn up conventional mind, that we rub, that conventional mind is like the tinder to use to create a fire. The And, and the, the conventional mind is thoughts of, of things of this and that on the one hand and combined with uh, the idea of the ultimate the idea of known production and together they burn themselves up and both disappear um, as a result one will, one will remain in the evenness of the Dharmadhatu beyond all conceptual extremes when two sticks of wood are rubbed together and fire is kindled the sticks themselves are also consumed in the same way the wisdom fire kindled when the two truths are truly united also consumes the apprehension of and clinging to the two truths as being two separate things so that one remains in the perfect freedom from all ontological extremes the Dharmadhatu in which appearance and emptiness are indivisible. So the next one, conventional phenomena are mind only, from Mipom's commentary on the same text. The way of describing the two truths is not the preserve of only one tradition. It is the great path of the Mahayana in general. For while all phenomena are empty of intrinsic existence, their mere appearance on the conventional level is said to have no cause other than the mind alone. Then he quotes this from this famous sutra, the Lanka Avatara Sutra, which is one of the earlier sutras. It's like 
from like around, it seems to be from around like the first century of the common era. And uh, the text is famous for presenting the idea that all phenomena are nothing but mind. And uh, some some people who cleave to the idea that the second turning is superior to the third turning say that, well, the Buddha said this for those those people who are afraid of real emptiness. He said, well, everything is mind. Because he didn't want to shock them completely with complete emptiness. They weren't they weren't emotionally stable enough to accept that. So he he taught them that everything is mind only. Talankavatara Sutra says, from time without beginning, mental imprints in the mind appear as objects. So everything we see around us is is uh, the appearing for, uh, version of mental imprints in the cosmic mind that we all share. They are like reflections in a looking glass, but if one sees them as they are in all their purity, one finds that there are no external things. You know, so if you analyze partless particles, they make no sense at all, just like uh, modern physics has now got to the point where they can't find anything. You know, the the atoms and the molecules and the protons and the electrons and, uh, you know, all dissolved into quarks and then into strings and now they dissolve into gluons and borons, bosons, bosons, right? And then those dissolve into space. Uh, this shows that there are no extramental objects. All such things are but the mind. The personal continuum and the aggregates, causation and the atoms likewise. Prakriti. Prakriti is, is the primordial creative energy according to the Samkhya Hindu school. And the creator gods, so they sort of come together. God uh, sort of manifests in prakriti and then uh, inst instantaneously creates the multitude of phenomena without dividing uh, herself. All our fancies that the mind alone constructs. The second quotation shows that there's no creator outside of mind. There's nobody else out there. This beginningless existence composed of various phenomena has not arisen by itself uncaused. Neither is it brought about by extraneous causes, the passage of time, or the combination of infinitesimal particles, nor through God, Purusha. And Purusha is the counterpart of Prakriti. Prakriti is the creative energy, and Purusha is like the, the, um, the soul the essence of God that res resides in each person, according to Samkhya, and so forth. It has arisen through the power of one's own mind, and to speak in this way is none other than teaching of the entire Mahayana. The Venerable Chandra Kirti has likewise said, and so he's going to quote, you know, Mr. Prasangika, who uh, everyone else quotes as denying that phenomena are extramental, and he's going to uh, use this famous quote from Chandra Kirti, where Chandra Kirti affirms the extramental quality of relative phenomena. The vast array of sentient life, the varied universe containing it, 
so the the uh, environment and its contain its contents is formed by the mind or by mind the so buddha said that wandering beings are from karma born karma is mind it's an activity of mind karma is not cause and effect in the in the scientific sense of equal and opposite actions karma is uh, the mental uh, uh, system of causation dispense with mind and karma is no more if you cut the root of mind there is no karma to say that the world of appearances does not arise from the mind necessarily implies the belief that it is caused by something else what could that be and since this involves the assertion that beings are bound in samsara delivered from it through causes other than their own minds it will doubtless cause one to fall into non-buddhist tenant systems if there's some external entity governing everything then then how are we ever going to achieve enlightenment how did we create our own samsara our own mind is responsible for the whole thing not somebody else or something else it is therefore established step by step that if there is no external creator and no external world extramental objects are but the mind's self-experience just the mind experiencing itself and thinking that things are external why do we all experience the same thing or similar things because we all have the same karmic mind stream and we share in the same karmic mind stream that's where we're here together that's why we're on this planet and that's why we ended up on this little screen together this thus this assertion that conventionalities are mind only exists in all mahayana schools it's not just the chitta mantra why is it then that the glorious Chandrakirti and others do not posit the conventional level in this way as was explained above when he establishes the ultimate in itself which accords with the field of wisdom of aryas while they are in meditative equipoise it is sufficient for him to refer to as objects of assessment the phenomena of samsara and nirvana as they appear and are experienced on the empirical level without analyzing or examining them he doesn't want to confuse people with the, the whole idea of uh, the complexity of analyzing relative phenomena since from the beginning these phenomena are beyond the four conceptual extremes it is not necessary for him to enter into close philosophical investigation of the way phenomena appear on the conventional level that's not his project his project is to identify the ultimate when one assesses appearances with words and concepts one may for instance say that phenomena exist or that they do not exist that phenomena are of or not the mind are or um, are not rather the mind but however one may assert them they do not exist in that way in the ultimate level therefore with the consequences of the prasangika reasoning and that's what prasangika reasoning is it's the use of consequential logic if you if we assert a then b and so on uh, which which investigates the ultimate chandra kirti is merely refuting the incorrect ideas of his opponents and given that chandra kirti's own stance is free from all conceptual references how could he assert a theory of his own 
he never asserts a theory of his own. All he does is, is make fun of other people's assertions. He does not. In this way, he can refute without needing to separate the two truths, whatever assertions are made concerning existence and non-existence. So he doesn't have to separate the two truths because he doesn't accept the relative truth. It's not a truth. It's a misnomer to call it a truth. Um, in the present Swatantrika context of Shantarakshi, Tuzmadyamaka, Alamkara, since the two truths are assessed with reasoning specific to each of them, nothing can be refuted or established without distinguishing these same two truths. So Chandrakirti used exclusively ultimate reasoning. And Mipam is saying that Shantarakshita used both conventional and ultimate reasoning. Therefore, he was able to uh, enter into the world of understanding the relative without getting all mixed up. Uh, let's see. But in Chandrakirti's tradition, assessment is made using the valid reasoning that investigates the ultimate nature of the two truths united. The actual non-figurative ultimate. That's his sole concern. As Chandrakirti quotes from a scripture in his auto-commentary to the Madhyamakavatara, on the ultimate level, O monks, there are no two truths. This ultimate truth is one. Thus the Honorable Chandrakirti emphasizes and establishes the non-figurative ultimate from the very beginning. He does not refute mere appearances, for these are the very basis for investigation into the ultimate. They are the means and the gateway to it. He therefore accepts them as a basis for debate and establishes them as being beyond all conceptual extremes. Then in the post-meditation period, he establishes his own position and refutes those of his opponents concerning the path and result in accordance with the way they are assessed by the two kinds of reasoning. In terms of the relative, he focuses on the path, understanding how the path works. And thus even Chandrakirti makes assertions on the conventional level, and these cannot be invalidated. So he does enter into the conventional in regard to understanding how the path works. He asserts conventional phenomena as mere appearance, appearances or simply as dependent arisings. There's nothing more you can say about them. If with regard to these mere appearances an investigation is made using conventional reasoning, Chandrakirti and the Prasangakas generally do not deny the manner in which samsara and nirvana are produced through the forward and backward progression of the twelve interdependent links of existence. So the twelve nadanas, pratitya, samadbhada, demonstrates how samsara is created when we look at it in the forward progression from 1 to 12 and how nirvana is brought about when we look about look at them in the backward progression from 12 to 1 phenomena are known are shown rather to arise dependently through the power of the pure or impure mind what's the starting point of the 12 nadanas what's the first nadana the first cause. Ignorance. Ignorance. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. And this clearly expresses the tenet of mind only, that mind is supreme. 
freedom from the four conceptual extremes from his commentary on the same text. Freedom from the four conceptual extremes arises in a person's mind in the following manner. In the case of a beginner who penetrates it step by step, perfect and stainless reasoning first eliminates the conceived object. What is an example of a conceived object? My mother, the car. <laughs> is that like horns of a rabbit or all that stuff? It's more than that. Isn't it, is it anything we can think of? Yeah. It's anything you can possibly think of. Um, that's a con that's the conceived object. That is the misconception that all compounded or uncompounded phenomena really exists. Reasoning then refutes the conceived objects of the three remaining extremes that things don't exist, that they both are do or neither, and that they neither exist nor not exist, whatever. Subsequently, thanks to meditating in accordance with the extraordinary certainty wherein the conceived objects of the extreme ontological positions have no place, the point will come where all conceptual extremes will stand refuted in a single stroke. And the practitioner will behold the Dharma Dhatu clearly. It's like when, when you really understand how to refute the four extremes, you, you no longer have to do it one by one or progressively. It's like you just understand the magical key that renders them all inoperative immediately and uh, completely. It is as the great and omniscient Garampa Sonam Senge, which is really cool that Mipam is uh, quoting uh, this uh, famous Sakya master who was a uh, um, great Madhyamaka master and uh, was very controversial for the Sakyas. He didn't really go along with the traditional Sakya way of understanding things, but he was very radical. Um, the intellect of ordinary people, which investigates ultimate reality, cannot refute in a single stroke all four conceptual extremes. People like me, ordinary people, I have to go like one by one. Well, let me take this one. How do I refute this one? But by refuting these extremes one after the other and by meditating properly, which is what I'm missing, one reaches the path of seeing. This is called the view that sees the Dharma Dhatu. The learned and accomplished masters of the old translation school, i.e. the Nengmapas, take as their stainless view the freedom from all conceptual constructs of the four extremes, the ultimate reality of the two truths and separately, inseparably united. In addition, they possess the profound pith instructions of the Vajrayana. He's implying that they bring the understanding on a sutrayana level together with the understanding of the Vajrayana, which is uh, radical for people like Galupas. They completely separate them, which is a sort of another whole topic. They actualize the ultimate nature by developing certainty, excuse me, by developing certainty in it through the path of perfect reasoning, the arguments of the four realizations. What are the four realizations? Let's see. Hmm. 
This is a way, the four realizations. Oh, it's some tantric thing. Cool. And then by their meditation, they achieve unshakable confidence in the inseparability of the two truths, the indivisibility of primordial purity. Kadak. Remember these terms. Just the sound of the words. Kadak. Primordial purity. So this is the Nyingma uh, Vajrayana way of presenting reality. Uh, uh, reality is primordially pure. It's beyond the four extremes. Kadak. Cause the first letter of the of the alphabet. So it's like alpha pure. Dak is pure. And spontaneous accomplishment. Lundra. Appearances are spontaneously accomplished. They don't like come about in a progressive order. They're just there. This is how they have gained and continue to gain accomplishment. Yes, sir. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but is it correct to say, I mean, that's a more intense Vajrayana way of saying the indivisibility of emptiness and appearance. It is, yes. It's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a way Reminding us, but it's always hard to know what to take from it beyond that lonely practitioner that I am. <laughs> like, right, primordial purity, right. Well, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like, is that something beyond, you know, the indivisibility of the two truths or the or the absence of the four ontological extremes? It's, it's, a, it's a way of pointing to the... Uh, the fact that nothing ever happened, you know, primordial, primordial is like, it's not like, uh, to some extent we think, um, okay, there's all these appearances and we're sort of reversing them, even though we don't like literally think that way. It's like we start with appearances and then have to undercut them, our belief in them. And the idea of primordial purity is we don't, we don't, there's, we don't give into them from the start. So it's, it's, you know, it's different, it's fancy terminology, as Eric is saying, that, you know, is like supposed to have, you know, some sexy or, you know, coolness to it. But it does have that, that implication, that uh, sort of looking at it from that Vajrayana point of view, which is the inseparability of ground, path, and result. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to denigrate the Vajrayana language. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. You know, I, I, didn't. Didn't take, I didn't take it that way at all. I didn't take Isn't it, it also, in a sense, ties in with the Trekcha and Togal, you know, I mean, sort of ties to those practices? It which, certainly does, yeah. Which to which? Well, Kadak with Trekcha and uh, uh, Lundrup with Togal. Yeah, yeah. So fan- more fancy words for you guys. But these are the two main practices in Dzogchen practice. Um, Dzogchen is presented really in three ways. One is like just like as this one thing, just like Dzogchen, you know, just sort of beyond and and you know, great completion without any real practical application of like how to practice it. And then when you find finally uh, gain access to texts that tell you actually how to practice Dzogchen, it happens in two phases: trickcha, uh, cutting through to uh, primordial purity. And Togel, which is uh, leaping over into spontaneous presence, is how they're described. And uh, 
the second one in particular is very secret and and es esoteric practice. The first one, Trekcha, is very similar to Mahamudra in many ways. And they are affiliated with Kadak and Lundrup, as Cynthia stated. This is how they have gained and continue to gain accomplishment. Hundreds of thousands of treasures of Dharma burst forth in their minds. Whoa! <laughs> Overload! And may, many have reached the realization of the all-penetrating rainbow body. You guys hear about the rainbow body? Multicolored, huh? Yes. Such is the result of their perfect view which guides them on the path. One might think that such a view is confined to the Nigma Paz alone, but that is not so. The absence of the four conceptual constructs was repeatedly taught by the Buddha in the profound sutras and tantra scholars. For example, the six ornaments of India. And uh, you can refer, refer to your chart for the six ornaments of India. Um, Aryadeva and Vasubandhu. Dharmakirti and uh, Dignaga and Dharmakirti, and then Gunaprabha and Shakya Prabha. And let's see, have elucidated this teaching both directly and indirectly, and it has been the inner practice of all the great accomplished Vidyadharas. It is the sole path to omniscience and is the very heart of the views of both the Sarmapa and the Nigmapa. So, Sarmapa means the new, newer peoples, the new folks, which means the schools of the new translation period starting from about the 11th century onward and includes this today it includes the Kagyu, the Sakya and the Geluk schools. Meditating on Madhyamaka, advice for the student from Mipam's answer to Drakkar Tulku. Dracula, Tulku. I would like to say a few words just as they come to mind and with the intention of helping all those, whether of our own or other schools, who are trying to realize suchness. On the basis of correct reasoning, beginners must achieve certainty that phenomena are without intrinsic being. That's an interesting point. On the basis of correct reasoning, beginners, i.e. people like me, must achieve certainty that phenomena are without intrinsic being. And that absence of real existence and dependent arising are actually the same thing. It is of the highest importance simply to generate an extraordinary conviction that appearance and emptiness are inseparably united, just as with the moon reflected in the water. So he's saying this is the preliminary to meditation. By relying on this and growing used to it, you will gain an understanding that will indeed correspond to the fundamental mode of being of things, be that as it may, whatever is apprehended conceptually cannot go beyond the figurative ultimate. You should never say that this and this alone constitutes the meaning of the Prajnaparamita and that there is no higher ultimate than this. If you do this, you will be taken as definitive what is but a semblance of Prajnaparamita, the mere object of an ordinary consciousness. The result will be that you will not enter the wisdom that is utterly non-conceptual and is the authentic meaning of Prajnaparamita. What he's saying is that as you try to understand what the nature of ultimate reality is, every time you do that, every time you raise that intention of what is the ultimate reality, 
you need to realize that every time you try to understand the ultimate reality, you're necessarily conceptualizing it. And so then you say, you have to say to yourself, okay, I just had a glimpse of something that's like a reflection of the real ultimate. And then you let go of your mind. And say, you say to yourself, the real ultimate is completely beyond any way of understanding the ultimate. And then you think, well, why bother trying to understand it if it's beyond my understanding? Why not just like try to cut my mind out or like stop conceptualization? And the answer to that is that the only way to under to actually experience the the world that's beyond conceptual construct is to use conceptual constructs. That whole image of the firewood, as frustrating as that may be. Um, let's see. A question, Eric. When you were when we were just saying that, very helpful. But would you say? I mean, anything that's a conceptual understanding certainly is not the ultimate. But when you mention glimpse, if it's an experiential glimpse as opposed to you know, is isn't that slightly different until we conceptualize it? That's a great question, and I hope you all have that same question and understand what what Cynthia said. It's like, it's like we say, okay, so uh, emptiness and interdependent arising are the same thing. Emptiness and appearances are the same thing, and and therefore I should let go of my conceptual framework. And so we we try to do that. Now, if you achieve the path of seeing, if you cut off the defilements and the belief in the self and no longer are subject to birth and death, then you've succeeded. If you haven't, if the very next moment you think about like what time it is and what you have to do and so on and so forth, you've not succeeded. And so you've generated a subtler conceptual construct and so that's really helpful to know is that we can create exceedingly subtle conceptual constructs. We, we're creating the conceptual construct of beyond conceptual construct. But the world beyond conceptual construct is not a conceptual construct of beyond conceptual construct. And at the same time, the only way to reach that world is to do that process of creating ever more subtle conceptual constructs. At least in this path, it's not the only way. You know, there's other ways like hitting, getting hit by the sandal. You know, Talopa hits Naropa. <laughs> Everything falls apart. But you got to get up to that point, you have to do all this, you know, realistically anyway. Um, the result will be that you will not enter that wisdom that is utterly non-conceptual and the authentic meaning of Prashnaparamita. And you will be turning your back on the unmistaken way of penetrating it, namely an uncontrived resting meditation in which nothing is removed and nothing is added. You know, getting getting beyond the point where, you know, initially we think, well, I have to remove my conceptual mind in order to experience the non-conceptual world. And he just indicated that at some point you have to realize that the conceptual world is beyond removing the conceptual mind. The conceptual mind does not get in, in the way of the conceptual, non-conceptual world. 
the non-conceptual world is not bothered by concept. Um, as long as you fail to relinquish your attachment to the supremacy of your view, so he's talking about. Then, then what happens is you getting you get a little cocky or arrogant, like, oh, I really got it. And you know, whether you say that to somebody else or not, the thought that oh, I think I've got it, you've immediately missed it completely, right? <laughs> um. Actual primordial wisdom beyond all conceptual constructs will not take birth in your mind stream. Therefore, the mind that understands with certainty that dependently arising phenomena without inherent existence understands also that all things are like a moon reflected in water. It looks like the moon is there, but the moon is not really there. But why is it reflected there if it's not, if it's not there? Ineluctable. Ineluctable. Um, and yet this is no more than an approximation to the certainty enjoyed by noble beings in their post-meditation when they see that everything is like an illusion. The ultimate reality of suchness is indeed to be scrutinized closely. Nevertheless, the realization of the non-figurative ultimate itself, the experiential sphere of meditative equipoise, is free from conceptual constructs. It is beyond the reach of thought and word, and is therefore the way of being of the ineffable ultimate that cannot be revealed by examples. All this is to be recognized by distinctly self-cognizing primordial wisdom. Self-cognizing primordial wisdom. He's just pointed out a very helpful, skillful means that the way that we realize the non-conceptual world is by a thing called self-cognizing primordial wisdom. We, um, all other types of cognition are other cognizing. There's this, there's this false sense that there's a subject cognizing an object. Oh, I'm realizing the non-conceptual reality. As long as it has the subject-object framework, it's not genuine non-conceptual realization. Genuine non-conceptual realization arises through primordial, meaning before mind, before time, self-cognizing. It knows itself. Before it knows anything, it knows, it knows itself. And it knows, it's, uh, it's not like there's something to be known, but it, it knows. Um, and it is an experience that will still, that is still to be cultivated. This is something you should think about. <laughs> Ponder that, grasshopper. Now it might uh, be thought that such a fundamental mode of being is the field of experience of noble beings who are in possession of distinctly self-cognizing primordial wisdom, but that it cannot in any way be experienced by ordinary beings. Oh, I can't possibly understand this. It's way beyond somebody like me. True. The actual non-figurative ultimate is by no means experienced by ordinary beings, but only by the RAS, the understanding of ordinary beings can, uh, sorry, the understanding of ordinary beings can realize and taste the ineffable nature only by means of a meaning generality or mental image. So when we talk about creating a conceptual construct of the, the ultimate, 
the non-conceptual reality. The Tibetans have a technical term for that. They say, you've created a meaning generality. You've made uh, a general image that conveys the meaning of, of what you're getting at. But it's just a generality. It's, it's, a, it's a concept or a mental image. Image has a visual sense, but this is uh, beyond being either visual, auditory, or any other particular way of getting at it. And the Tibetan is pronounced dun chi. In, in case someday you hear people saying, in your tradition, do they emphasize the development of the dun chi? And you say, dun chi. What the fuck are they talking about? Oh, right, the conceptual meaning generality. Yeah, oh, yes, we do. This is referred to in the sutras as the acceptance of the nature of phenomena. This is, I thought, was very cool. So we look up the footnote, if you can read really small type. It's 269. And the footnote says, um, the attained on the level of acceptance. I'm sorry, acceptance of what? The level of acceptance? Were you accepted into the level? Attained on the level of acceptance, which is the third of the four levels of the path of joining. Of the five paths, which path is the path of joining? And if you know it, don't say it. But those of you who don't know it, say it. <laughs> or, or are not sure. Unification? Yes. Yeah. yeah, path of joining is the same as unification. Which number? Two. Two. There's two names for, names for it. That's the, it's the second path. That's right. That's the way to remember it. Unification and path of joining. But actually, there's three names for it. It's also called the path of preparation. Path of joining. Joining and unification are pretty similar terms, right? Anyway, uh, so there's four stages on that second path. The first path is the path of accumulation, where we basically cultivate shamatha and accumulate merit, which allows us to uh, bring about a state of life and a state of being that is conducive to much deeper understanding and meditation. And then on the path of joining or application or preparation or unification, the second path, we give rise to Vipassana and gradually bring Shamatha and Vipassana together through the four stages of that path. And the four stages are heat, peak, Heat is like things are warming up. It's like you're beginning to like get it in a non in a in a less conceptual way. And then peak is like is like you have this peak experience of like, oh, th there is nothing beyond the ultimate. And then acceptance. Patient often it's called patient acceptance. Sometimes it's translated as the patient acceptance acceptance of the uncreated nature of reality. It's like realizing that nothing's ever hap never happening. Nothing is ever happening. Nothing's ever going on. I'm like one of the more impatient people in the world, so uh, it's really hard for me. But this idea that like. Um, waiting, you know, trying to make something happen, you know, like being stuck in traffic and trying to get somewhere is a completely 
you know, erroneous, fabricated concept that there's somewhere to get and so forth. Nothing is ever really happening or going or coming or any of that. So just accepting that sort of stillness of the true nature of reality, that it's beyond evolving and so forth. Um, it's the the karmapa when he was dying, the 16th when he was dying. Sometimes. And said, nothing happens. Yeah, nothing happens. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. Famous quote from the karmapa, 16th. Uh, Miss C. Miss um, C. Actually, I, Derek, do you know how to say the Tibetan? Are you just being... I, I do, yeah, I do. Can you would, do it? Would you like me to say it? Uh, it's that means I, for, right? <laughs> that means I have to be able to read it. It's really small. Uh, Chuki Jesu. Chuki is of Dharma Jesu, is the uh, post-meditation. Tunpe Zupa. And uh, uh, Zopa's patience, and uh, Zopa, I'm sorry, the word before it, Tunpe, that's the genitive, and Tun, M-T-H-U-N is pronounced Tun, and that is the, uh, that's the acceptance part. It sort of means the uh, becoming accustomed to. Is what it means usually. Um, let's see. This is the point beyond which it is said the mind can no longer fall into the lower realms. Which is pretty significant, right? That certainly is. You become a non-lower realmer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was a good joke. I don't want to be one of those guys. Or what, what, there's a... Famous uh, refuge name is uh, non refundable non returner. <laughs> uh, let's see, where were we? Somewhere. You were going through the four um, steps within the path of joining and you didn't finish the fourth. Oh, the fourth one is a uh, supreme mundane experience. It's the uh, highest. Mon highest mundane experience. The highest experience when you're still within the samsara. And then the next moment is the path of seeing, going beyond samsara. Okay, so back on page 143. Uh, this is referred to in the sutras as the acceptance of the nature of phenomena. Patiently accepting that all phenomena are unborn. And in the tantras as example wisdom. It's the wisdom that's like true wisdom, but it's not quite the real thing, similar to the figurative ultimate. In either case, this is a state of mind attuned to the final and perfect ultimate, a state of freedom from conceptual constructs that is in accordance with this state may indeed be induced in the mind by virtue of no more than the certainty arising from analytical investigation. So by using analytical investigation, we can actually bring about a state of freedom from conceptual constructs that is in accordance with this state. To get beyond this, we have to go beyond 
analytical investigation. But analytical investigation will take us up very uh, up to right up to the peak of existence. The fourth level is often called the peak of existence. This, however, is a very lengthy process and <clears throat> takes birth in connection with and thanks to the extraordinary accumulation of merit, I'm sorry, of wisdom and merit. Thanks to an extraordinary accumulation. So great accumulation of merit and wisdom is required to bring this about. It can, on the other hand, be realized swiftly and without much difficulty in dependence on the profound methods of mantra. Little plug for Vajrayana, the swift path of Vajrayana. Do any of you aspire to become Vajrayana practitioners? Just curious. Cool. Okay. It's not for everybody, but neat. Um, and especially through the power of the pith instructions that introduce one directly to the nature of the mind. So the pith instructions are basically uh, the essence of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, which begin with what's called this uh, introduction, direct introduction to the nature of the mind. <clears throat> like you think you've met your mind right your whole life and then finally you uh, have somebody introduce you to your mind Derek this is your mind <laughs> mind this is Derek uh, let's see it is thus that the experience of the fundamental mode of being occurs so he's saying that with, with genuine uh, if you receive the introduction to the true nature of your mind in it it like really happens. It can uh, propel you on the path in a big way. When this happens, if the person concerned is someone who has already acquired through examination based on study and reflection, a strong conviction of, or in, I guess, the separability, inseparability of emptiness and dependent arising, he or she will be in a position to compare the experience that occurred in the course of analysis with the experience occurring now, which does not derive from analysis but from resting in the natural state of mind, free from all apprehension and clinging. <coughs> so they're equivalent, they're equivalent experiences. Um, either going through an, a long process of analytical investigation or by going through the uh, more swift path of the Vajrayana and receiving the direct introduction to the nature of the mind. The caveat is that the introduction to the nature of the mind, to, for it to be effective, needs one to have gone through uh, some substantial amount of preparation in terms of accumulation of merit and wisdom, i.e., analytical investigation. Um, on both occasions, there's no difference what, whatever in what is taken as the object, namely the fundamental nature in which emptiness and dependent arising are indivisible. Notice that there's still an object. However, when you're analyzing it, it's like having your eyes closed and thinking about something in front of you. This is a great analogy. Your, your eyes are closed and you're thinking about something in front of you. Whereas when you're in the state that is free of clinging, I think he's referring to uh, the state that arises when you have the direct introduction 
that really works. It is like having your eyes open and seeing the thing directly. That is the difference. And once you have experienced this, then no matter how much other people may denigrate your practice that is free from all apprehension, and no matter how much they may explain to others the flavor of the, of the what? Triacle? What the hell is a triacle? Triacle. It's molasses. It's what? It's like molasses. Oh. Very, very sweet. Wow. Cool. cool. And thick and syrupy? It's like caramel, yeah. Cool. Uh, no matter how much they may, may explain to others the flavor of the tr- How do you pronounce it? Treacle. Treacle. Cool. That you yourself have actually tasted, you will never have any doubt. If, on the other hand, you have studied only a little, and this is like there's this phrase in some place, maybe the Sadhana Mahamudra, like, no matter, you know, even if all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions and the Four Times should confront you, you will, you know, not flinch, and you will remain convinced that you've seen the true nature of reality. If, on the other hand, you've studied only a little, if you've not, by means of reasoning, gained certainty in the fundamental mode of being, and if you are not in possession of the key points of the pith instruction, you may rest without fabrication in a completely blank state of mind, without understanding or perceiving uh, anything. But how could you possibly come anywhere near the state of absence of conceptual construct? You just sink into, into the concept of nothingness. By contrast, if you have managed to perfect your investigation of the fundamental mode of being, or if you are in possession of the pith instructions for settling the mind, the light of wisdom in which all four extremes are simultaneously discarded will become clear. And the best is to cultivate both. Cultivate the path of investigation and the path of Vajrayana. Therefore, the realization through certain knowledge of the non-figurative ultimate is, generally speaking, to be posited as the realization of the ultimate, in just the same way that all objects understood through inferential reasoning, which understands by way of mental images, or objects' generalities. That's how inference works. Inference works through generating an object generality. Um, are to be referred to as realizations. For instance, through reasoning, one comes to the realization that they are past and future lives. Through the testament of scripture, one realizes the existence of the karmic law of cause and effect. And through the evidence of smoke, one realizes that there is weed, oh no, fire, and so on. Just kidding. See if you're paying any attention. Okay, we have a little time to dive into the lion's roar. Can anyone tell me which, to what point we're supposed to go through in the text of the lion's roar tonight? I seem to have misplaced. Uh, here we go. My slabus. Uh, page 145 to 54. Oh, nine pages. Well... We'll start. The lines were so. Um, yeah, he just. <clears throat> we just went through a number of presentations that were quite eloquent and quite uh, convincing. I found about the indivisibility of the two truths and the uh, indivisibility of appearance and emptiness and so on. 
However, when we get to Buddha nature, it's like the complexity of reconciling Buddha nature and emptiness. Reconciling those two is sort of like on a different order of things. It's like, so is Buddha nature just an, an empty appearance? How do we how do we understand these two? So that is the the quandary that really has uh, uh, um, been grappled with through Buddhist tradition for thousands of years. So how do we understand Buddha nature then, given this understanding of the absence of the four ontological extremes? Is Buddha nature non-existent? Is it is it existent? Is it both or neither? Okay, so um, and and it's uh, it's the way that this, the that uh, the Mahayana schools are divided on how to understand Buddha nature. The uh, the Madhyamaka tradition that is uh, common in some schools denigrates. Buddha nature and says, well, it's a relative truth, it's a relative phenomena, and ultimately everything is emptiness. And then there's those who uh, cleave to Buddha nature as being ultimate, and so that there is something that exists in the ultimate. And the way that you understand Buddha nature to be existent varies. There's, you know, actually it's sort of clunky. Oh, there's some there's some thing called Buddha nature which really exists, or there's the refined, subtle, profound way of understanding the reconciliation of Buddha nature and emptiness, which is what Mipam is going to present to us, and I dare not try to explain it. The nature of the mind primordially immaculate kadak and the is the ultimate manjushri bodhisattva hero who with sharp the sharp blade of the path of reasoned certainty cuts through the webs of confusion and existence the heart uh, chitta in uh, sanskrit heart the chitta the essence of the teachings of all victorious ones, past, present, and to come, the core of their enlightened mind, the single crucial point of all the teachings of the sutras and tantras, is exclusively the all-pervading but essence, the Sugata Garbha. So right from the start, this huge leap, you know, way beyond my, you know, effort to, uh, you know, my sort of pit pitiful lament of like, how am I going to reconcile Buddha nature and emptiness? Is Buddha nature real or not real? Or, and he just like, boom. <laughs> the ultimate is Buddha nature. The Sugata Garbha. So normally we say Tathagata Garbha. And this, the significance of Sugata Garbha versus Tathagata Garbha is... I don't know, subtle. Let's see, in this translation, the footnote says, we've consistently rendered the Tibetan terms Rik as Buddha potential, Kam as Buddha element, and Sangye Ki Ningpo as Buddha essence. Okay, a little bit obscure. 
This matter is extremely profound, so much so that the Buddha said that even for the great and powerful bodhisattvas on the tenth ground, the highest bodhisattvas just before enlightenment, that even for them it is difficult, it is as difficult to realize the Sugatagarbha correctly as it is to discern a form in the dark of night. Okay, so, you know, it's not such a terrible thing that I can't understand how to reconcile Buddha nature and emptiness because even the highest level bodhisattvas have a hard time with that. Does that mean that Mipam is a Buddha because he does understand it? I don't know. Uh, let's see. This being so, what need is there to speak of the capacity of ordinary beings? Moreover, in some of his discourses, the Sugata, our teacher, elucidated the nature of the Sugata Garbha by speaking about its emptiness. On other occasions, he elucidated its character by saying that it is primordially endowed with the ten strengths and other enlightened qualities. Now, even though these two aspects are necessarily united without contradiction, some people, through their failure to find confidence in the crucial point of the inseparability of the two truths, which is more profound than the profound, consider that the Suga de Garpa is permanent and not empty by its nature. Okay, he just told us something very important. Um, some people through their failure to find confidence in the crucial point of the inseparability of two truths. In other words, to think that the, the Sugha de Garbha, the Buddha nature, is permanent and not empty is wrong. I think that's what he just said. Do you agree? Yep. Okay, so that's wrong. Others, by maintaining that it is mere emptiness, um, fail to understand that it is primordially endowed with the inalienable qualities of the kayas and wisdoms. Huh, okay, so it's not empty either. It's not permanent and tr and, and uh, truly existent, nor is it empty. Thus they adopted... Not mere emptiness. A mere... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thus they adopt a nihilistic view and make the mistake of underestimation. You underestimated me, didn't you? And in the hope of substantiating their opinions, they proclaim their refutations and assertions with all the clamor of a tempestuous sea. By contrast, those who are fortunate enough to be guided by their teachers' essential instructions, a perfect nectar whereby their hearts are satisfied, have faith in primordial wisdom, the non-contradictory union of the expanse of emptiness and the wisdom of luminosity. The only way you can conceive of the indivisibility of these two is by going beyond your conceptual framework, because the conceptual framework says that those can't be the same. They can't be united. They bring to rest any kind of fixation on the extremes of either appearance or emptiness. It is in accordance with their position that I shall now speak. As a general principle, the words of the Tathagata, which are utterly trustworthy, are expressed in scriptures that are perfectly correct and reliable. The undeceiving and definitive character of these same scriptures in gen is generally established through three kinds of examination. 
What are those three? Investigation based on the three types of valid cognition. Direct perception, inference, and the authority and consistency of scripture. Specifically, the explicit meaning revealed in the words of the text should be held as definitive when it is shown that reasoning does not disprove it, and that it is moreover supported by valid demonstration. It is a mistake to neglect the reasoning by which the scriptures are substantiated and to proceed simply on the basis of a trust that one may feel in their regard. He's trying to explain how are scriptures, authentic scriptures, an authentic means of valid cognition or valid reasoning? Which is a slippery slope, you know? It's like, oh, because it's written in that text there, therefore it must be true. It's generally disregarded in, in most presentations of valid cognition, that sort of authority of scripture. For the, there are in general scriptures that are true and scriptures that are false, and among those that are true, one cannot deny that some scriptures are a definitive meaning while some are a provisional. Some point out the true, complete nature of reality and some don't. Consequently, ordinary beings are able to cut through their misconceptions by means of study and reflection. And thanks to the three types of valid cognition, of direct perception, inferential reasoning, and authentic scripture. Um, they are able to ascertain the points that should be assimilated, and it is thanks to this that they acquire irreversible conviction. And on the other hand, if on the other hand, they fail to ascertain through valid cognition the truth of their position for themselves, and <clears throat> they are unable to prove it to those who contest it, they are like those who though unsure about the presence of an invisible flesh-eating spirit, proclaim that there it is in front of them. <laughs> that it is there in front of them. <laughs> They're unable to convince either themselves or anyone else. Therefore, the learned should adopt a procedure of speaking in a way that accords with reason. If their position is logically established, their supporters will be filled with irreversible enthusiasm and the tongues of dissenters will be cut short. By contrast, when a path is not established by reason, then no matter how much it is decorated by all meaning of assertions, a host of doubts will proliferate like water welling up from a spring. <clears throat> Therefore, if we engage in the path that has been expounded by the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and their lineage, <clears throat> excuse me, and that has not been muddled by mere intellectuals, and if we set biased partisanship aside and honestly assess the correct reasons that establish the Sugata Garbha, we will see that there are no arguments for and many arguments against two false assertions. The first is that the Sugata Garbha is permanent, truly existent and not empty by nature. That's one extreme. The second is that it is simply emptiness and is devoid of qualities, is the other extreme. Conversely, we will see that there are excellent arguments that support and none that undermine the assertion that the Buddha essence exists within sentient beings and that, though empty by nature, it has the character of being primordially endowed with enlightened qualities. So on the one hand, we say that the nature of reality is empty but appearing. 
And here we're saying <clears throat> the nature of reality is empty but endowed with uh, enlightened qualities. So uh, let's see. Let's do this first point and then we'll pause in a certain way. The Sugadagarbha is present in the minds of beings. Let us begin, therefore, by examining the arguments that demonstrate the presence of the Buddha essence, the Sugadagarbha, within the minds of beings. The Uttara Tantra. Who's the author of the Uttara Tantra? Who wrote that book? Anyone? Mary Beth said it. Thank you, Maitreya. The Future Buddha. It's one of his five books. The Uttara Tantra contains the following text or verse. Because the Kaya of perfect Buddhahood radiates. Because in suchness there is no division. Because they have potential for enlightenment, all beings have at all times Buddha essence. Very famous quote. So his entire text, his entire presentation is going to be a commentary on these four lines. Now, in order to establish the meaning of this text through the use of logical arguments, we will first mention the position of other traditions and then state the position of our own perfect tradition. Okay, so uh, before we end, let's pause there and go back a couple of pages. Just take a peek at the table, uh, the uh, textual outline that occurs on page 145. And... Uh, This outline is done in, a, in the, the Tibetan style, which is very unusual for Westerners. In the Tibetan style, every entry of a certain level in the outline gets the same number. Let me say that again. So uh, in the Tibetan outline system, every entry that's of like major importance gets the number one. And then under that, there's a series of, of points that are, if they're of equivalent importance, they're number twos. Let's demonstrate that with the, the way this is done. So the first <coughs> line says, the Sugatagarbha is present in the mind of beings. <coughs> then we drop down. And there's another number one. In the West, that would be number two, right? But... It's a number one because it's of the same level of hierarchy in the outline. So another major point. So all the major points get ones. The manner in which the Sugatagarbha is present in the minds of beings. And then another one. A refutation of certain false positions regarding the Buddha element. And then on the next page, we have the conclusion. You know, it's interesting. It, that form, That's really very much like if you go into Microsoft Word or any typical formatting it's like the formatting itself if you use it in structure in your document there's a you know a title and then there's heading level one and heading level two and heading level three and so when you uh, assign one of those to each major topic it's really the same as this idea there you know they don't number them that way but it's the same concept as the basic uh, formatting in like microsoft or anything there you have it. Microsoft is Tibetan. <laughs> it's actually Tibetan. Okay, so <clears throat> the main points are that the Sugadagarbha is present in the mind of beings. The next one is that 
is the manner in which the Sugudagarva is present in the beings. And then there's the uh, refutation of false ways of understanding that. So there's the statement, the Sugudagarva is present in the mind of beings and how it is. And then there's the refutation. Going back up to the top, the assertions of earlier Tibetan masters is the first point under the Sugudagarva is present in the minds of beings. And then the assertion of our own position. So first he talks about the way others view this situation, and then he talks about the way our tradition, his Nyingma tradition, views it. And then he goes through the, the lines of the text, the meaning of the first line, skipping a bunch. He says the meaning of the second line and the meaning of the third line. So he presents the understanding of this incomprehensible way of existing of Buddha nature. And then he, he in his refutation section, <clears throat> the first major heading is a refutation of the view that the Buddha element is not empty. So he's refuting those that view the, the Buddha nature as being permanent. And then he has the refutation of the view that the Buddha element is empty. And then lastly, a refutation of the view that the Buddha element is impermanent and compounded. Oh, it's just another thing. Just another phenomena. So we will dive into that next week. And and uh, hope you continue to read the biography as well. But probably we won't have time to go through both. I don't know, we'll see when we go through the lines or it might be quicker and then we can go through the biography backtrack. Comments, suggestions, questions, concerns? I just love Mipam's writing. It's amazing, isn't it? He's yeah. such a good writer. He's such it's a neat writer. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Very <laughs> amazing. Yeah, and he, it's like he addresses all the points. He doesn't like evade the quest, you know, the issues. Yeah. And often you read things and they're like, they make these big points, but then they don't really like explain it fully. Like you have these questions in your mind, like, well, what about this? And he says, okay, now, you know, if you're thinking, what about this? And he addresses it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Anything else? So study those charts. There'll be a quiz on them next week okay let us end with the uh chanting here let's see okay by this merit may all obtain omniscience may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth old age sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east may the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled may all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory Thank you. There's like fireworks in the, in going off in my neighborhood. I don't know. Anyway, great to see you. Thank you. Sorry about last week. No worries. <laughs> and uh, be well and see you next Tuesday. Nice. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. See y'all. Bye. Bye.